It's a real privilege for me tonight to introduce to you Walt Hendrickson. Over 25 years ago, two young men were buddies in a small Dutch seminary in Holland, Michigan. The Lord didn't lead either one of them into what we would call the ministry of a local church. One is now the congressman in Washington, D.C. for Western Michigan, and the other one is our speaker. Uh, little did they realize as they were studying various uh, topics or whatever you do in the seminary that their paths would go in those directions. Walt is an ordained preacher. But I don't think of him in those terms. And if you get to know him, you, you hardly even realize that uh, he's been down that path. But we're so grateful tonight that he disciplined himself those studies and prepared his heart because in his ministry to laymen he has the ability to take the things of God and the history of God's working and communicate it in layman's language and this is not going to be boring it's not going to be way beyond us this is going to be motivational it's right down where we live and it will affect you and me in our businesses and our relationships in the 20th century, the 1980s. And we're so fortunate here in this area to have Walt living in Colorado Springs. Mary and I kind of a real privilege because the young lady he married was living in our home. And uh, he saw this lovely young girl who was sort of... Um, I was going to say a second mother to my children. My wife spent quite a bit of time during those days in the hospital. And Liette uh, cooked uh, for my children and loved them and took care of them. Walt saw all this, the potential of a beautiful young girl, and uh, married her, and God has given to them a beautiful family. They live in the springs. His base ministry is there with so many of you fellas, but reaching out not only here in the States, but around the world. Uh, I think the navigators with whom he served for 16, 18 years have felt the loss of his ministry, but their loss is our gain as he's dedicated himself in the prime of life to help us in our ministry. Where do you hurt? Where are your needs? What is the aspiration of your heart tonight? And I'm so glad that Here's a fellow who's walking with God who is going to help us with some of those answers. Well, on behalf of all these fellows here, come on up and serve with us. Will you, buddy? Let's welcome them to the I must confess to a certain amount of trepidation as I share this series with you, because I know that in an audience this size I have a variety of um, impressions. This, when I talk about spending a number of hours with you on the historical development of the Christian movement. So, um, I'm sure there's some of you here saying, well, what in the fact has that got to do with where I am in my life, and how does that relate to my endeavor to keep all the balls in the air that I've got? Others of you are going to take this session and you're going, to, you're going to listen to it and you're going to say, well, that should have been good. And that'll be the end of it. Some of you are going to really be uh, stimulating your thinking. 
And it's going to make a difference in your life. If you still have us that we all think you're going to go one step beyond that, you're going to want to do some reading and study on your own. And um, the sky is the limit when it comes to a subject like this. What I want to do with my brother, a little briefcase full of books. I love books. I spend a lot of time in books. And um, not everybody shares my enthusiasm and excitement over books. But I'm going to leave a few of them sitting around here in case some of you want to look at them. And um, I want to mention just a couple of them by way of introduction to you. And as we move through the course of our time together, if you have a spare time and want to browse through them, I'll leave them sitting here. And I appreciate you taking care of them because, like I said, I've got a little love affair with my books and I like to take care of them and uh, I spend a lot of time in them. One book that I think would be of uh, real interest to you is uh, a book put out by Time Life. And it's called The Times Atlas of World History. Any of you have this book? I would highly recommend it if you do, if you enjoy the subject that we're going to be discussing here today and over the weekend. It's not just a series of maps like most atlases are, but rather what it is, it's the history of civilization from its conception to the present. And with diagrams and with charts and with maps, as well as uh, a certain amount of copy, it paints for you the development of the various eras of the various countries of the world through the last 4,000 or so years. Tremendous book. And uh, a lot of what we'll be covering is in this book right here. It was not published by any church or any uh, council of churches. It was published by Time Life. But it's got a lot of good material in it. I highly recommend it to you. One is the book that you all, at least most of you, have. Some of you brought it with you. Um, Kenneth Scott Lauderette is probably the premier historian of all ages. He died in a tragic automobile accident a number of years ago. He was a um, professor at Yale Seminary and uh, was a missionary for a number of years in uh, China. And, and is very, very unique in his approach. And I want to talk about that in just a couple of moments. But he has a nine-volume work on the historical development of the Christian movement. And then what he did was he condensed that down into a two-volume work. And some of you who are avid students may want to, to buy this or look for it. This is the two-volume work. And then he narrowed it down to the one volume that you've got there. And uh, so this is the... Uh, the text that I used, for example, when I was in seminary, and we spent three years going through this. And it's a, it's a great set if you enjoy reading that kind of thing. Then there's a, uh, another little map, similar to the Time Atlas, but a little bit different, and that's the Penguin Atlas of Medieval History. And it tells about the development of the church and a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about. Now, I've got a map up here that I bought from the United States government a number of years ago. And there's just no way you can discuss history, particularly the history of the Christian movement, without a map. And um, I want to just take a moment here and talk with you about the rudimentary elements of this map, for some of you, this is going to be relating the obvious. For some of you, it may be something new. Not everybody has spent uh, as much time studying this as other people have. Europe, this part right here, and it's commonly thought of that Europe, the dividing line between Europe and Asia, is this stretch right through here, the Bosphorus, 
the Aegean Sea, the Bosporus, the Black Sea, and you're moving up about like that. And everything to the left here is Europe, and everything the other side of that is um, Asia. So that Greece would be considered in Europe, Turkey would be considered in Asia. That's normally where they consider the dividing line. The cradle of Christianity, of course, is this little speck of land right here. And from that, the Bible tells us that it began its expansion. Now, we don't know much about the expansion of Christianity out of the Bible apart from the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul did most of his ministry in this area right in here. And he tells us that in the book of Romans, when he's preparing to go to Rome to minister there, that his goal was to move from there on into Spain. Now that's all the Bible tells us about the history of the church and its development, its conception of days back there in the first century. So it just covers this area right here. Now what we're going to do in our times together is we're going to take it where the book of Acts closes and we're going to bring it on up to the present time. What happened in those formative days and how did it develop? Where were the things, the hurdles has got to jump? And, and so forth. This is what we're going to want to discuss in our times together. Now let me say also by way of introduction that I'd like to have this as a, as a time of interaction with you. And if you have questions, what I want you to do is, is don't worry about interrupting me. Just break in and let's discuss them. Uh, I learned a long time ago that telling is not teaching and listening is not learning. And simply because I say something doesn't mean that anything necessarily is being communicated. And so if I am doing a poor job of communicating, then uh, I want you to, to stop and we'll uh, go back over it again and discuss it. Or if you have questions, or there's any confusion, or you want to challenge anything about it, uh, by all means, let's do that. Now, let me just say also by way of introduction that the study of history is a tremendously difficult study. And um, you're handicapped by several things. First of all, you're handicapped by the fact that history is multifaceted. For example, you're dealing with the whole world when you're studying history. And so even though you may want to study, for example, Christianity, you've got to study it in the context of the rest of what's going on in the world because the rest of what's going on in the world affects it. Or if you want to study the United States of America, you've got to study the United States of America in the context of the rest of the countries of the world. For example, the the civil war in Europe, and that's what it was, it was just the European states warring with one another in the first and second world wars, had a profound impact on the United States of America. And uh, we'll never be the same as a result of it. So when you study the United States, you've got to study it in the context of what else is going on in the world. Not only that, you've got the problem of years. As we study Christianity, you're talking about 2,000 years. That's a long span of time. And what's happened in the past relates to what's happening in the present. And then to add to that, you've got the factors that came to bear on Christianity, things like, for example, your culture, your economics, your political structure, uh, education, wars, and all of these things came to play on it. So that when you're looking at the, the study of Christianity and its movement, you're handicapped by the, the scope of the job. The second thing you're handicapped by is the fact that we are all creatures of culture. All of us are. And by that we mean that we see things differently. 
us see things from our own filter system or through our own world view. If you've read this little book by Kenneth Scott Latterat, he a couple of times mentions the fact that we didn't come from Mars. And we came from the milieu of our birth and our, our heritage. And because of that, we can see things objectively. We can stand back and look at things without seeing them through our own rose-colored glasses. This is apparent. This is obvious. For example, in the makeup of denominations. The reason some of you are Presbyterians and others are Baptists and others are Roman Catholic and Methodists and so forth just simply lets us know that we see things differently. It has nothing to do with commitment. It has nothing to do with your dedication to Jesus Christ. It has to do with how you perceive reality as you open that Bible up and begin to study it. And for example, gentlemen, you know that during the Civil War we had a group of people in the North who opened their Bibles and read it and said slavery is wrong. And we had another people, a group of people, equally committed to the scriptures in the South who opened their Bibles and read it and said, slavery is right. That is the grid, the further system through which we see things. Now, in this introduction, Lauderette simply says, I have to tell you at the outset that I have a certain mindset, I have a certain uh, filter, a grid through which I am looking at history. And one of the things he says is I write it from the perspective of being a Christian. And so I have to tell you tonight that that's true for me also. I look at it from my own particular grid. I am a, a believer in Jesus Christ and uh, I'm committed to the Savior and to the uh, proposition that he meant what he said when he said go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so that as I look at life and as I look at the history of the Christian movement I have to tell you that I look at it from that perspective. Now, all history is written from a different, from, from a perspective, from the perspective of the historian. This is the reason why, for example, in our day, there's a tremendous struggle on the educational system as to who writes our history. And when a communist, for example, or a socialist government takes over, one of the first things they want to do is they want to re-edit the history books. Because what they want to do is they want to write history from their own perception of the way it is. Having said that, are there any questions before we move into this? If you get tired, uh, what I want you to do is just get up and get a cup of coffee and come back. Don't worry about uh, my being bothered by that. I probably will be, but I'll try not to show it. And uh, so, if they don't come back, yes. <laughs> any any questions or comments before we get started on this? Did MacArthur change the Japanese history book? Good question. I don't know the answer to that. I do not know. But did not, didn't MacArthur rewrite the, uh, the book, the school books for Japanese? So that may very well be. I just not, I'm not aware of that. That could be. But I know that a conqueror, if he wants to conform the people to his ways, that's one of the first things he does, is he grabs a hold of the education system and begins to shape it through his further system. Yes? Look, we're all starting from the same point and same division. Peter was the first pope, wasn't he? Of course. <laughs> I mean, nobody just used that, do they? Isn't that right, Bill? That's right. Uh, see? <laughs> now, I feel, now I feel comfortable. All right. <laughs> <laughs> And Winston was the last pope. <laughs> Is that right? 
Okay. How about how about auxiliary pope? We're we'll talking about that. Alright, we're we'll talking about that. Okay. Let's talk about the birth of religion. Begin there. Because it's interesting to note that the major religions of the world are all came into existence within about a 2,500 year period. And I would include in those religions Hinduism, Judaism, Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam. Now you might want to add to that uh, such religions as Taoism and so forth, and some add Confucianism. Although there's debate as to whether or not Confucianism is a philosophy as opposed to a religion. But all of these came into existence from about 1800 BC until about 700 AD, or about 2500 years. Now of these, all of them, with the exception of Hinduism and Judaism, came into existence within a 1500-year period. That is, approximately 850 B.C. until about 700 A.D. <coughs> and so, depending on how you date things, the 2500-year period may have started shortly after the flood and the Tower of Babel. Like I said, it depends on how you date your Bible. But it could very well be that that's when Hinduism and Judaism which, by the way, are the two major religions of the world. And so what I want to do is begin here by noting that with you. And let me just put it this way. We're going to call natural religion and supernatural. Supernatural religion comes about by revelation. Natural religion comes about by reason. Now one of the keys, one of the things that clue you into the difference between the two is how they view history. Natural religion views history as being cyclical. It repeats itself. You see this, for example, in the Hindu religion. You're born, you're locked into a, a, a system of life, like, for example, like the caste system if you're a human being. And depending on how you live in that system, then when you die, you're reincarnated to a higher system if you've done well and to a lower system if you've done poorly. And you just go through it. And you just, in the wheel of karma, you just go again and again and again. History is cyclical. Now the reason why reason tells us that history is cyclical is that that's the way everything appears to us. History repeats itself. We look at it and we see that that's, that's what happens. When we look at the season, we see that it's winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall. Everything seems to be cyclical. And so as we reason it out, we say life is cyclical. And that's how they came up with the whole idea of reincarnation. Philosophy views it that way. For example, the Greek philosophers thought of life and its history as being cyclical. The Hegelian philosophy, which has so permeated our generation through communism, for example, has the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. And the synthesis brings us into a new thesis and antithesis and synthesis. And it, likewise, is cyclical. 
so all natural reasoning leads us to believe that life is cyclical. But supernatural or revelation tells us that history is linear. It has a beginning and it has an end. And that when you die, you do not come back into the world as another being. There was a time when you were not, there was a time when you were, there's a time when you will die, and there's a time when after you die, you go on into eternity. It is linear, it is not cyclical. And that's the difference between a, a, a religion of revelation and a religion of reason. Now, the great religion of reason is Hindu. And the great religion of revelation is Judaism. Now all the other great religions of the world are evolutions of these two major religions. Christianity came into existence from Judaism. Islam came into existence as a reform movement of Judaism and Christianity. Islam was to the 7th century what the Mormons are to the 19th century. And so it came out of the cradle of Judaism and Christianity. And out of the Hindu religion came Buddhism. Buddha was a Hindu who tried to reform it. And it became a major religion. Now, the difference between these two, natural and supernatural, reason and revelation, can be clearly seen in how they view life. In Christianity, God seeks man. In all the other religions of the world, it is man who seeks God. In Christianity, the barrier is man's sin. In all the other religions of the world, the barrier is God's preoccupation. If you don't get through to God, it's because he's doing something else. And you've got to give his attention. So you come to the temple, and you clap. Or you do something to awaken him or to give his attention so that you can get together with him. In Christianity, the prerequisite to reconciliation is man's repentance. In all the religions of the world, the prerequisite to reconciliation is specialized knowledge. If you learn certain things, the fourfold path of Buddha, or whatever it is, then you lock in to a right relationship with God. In Christianity, God responds to man because God wants to respond to man. In all the other religions of the world, God responds to man because he is compelled to respond to man. Either because Man holds him in duress, or he propitiates the gods, or whatever. In Christianity, 
God gives everything for nothing. We call that grace. In all the other religions of the world, there's a contract that exists between God and man. God is favorably disposed toward me if I lift and meet my end of the deal. It's a works relationship. God is good toward me, providing I am good toward Him. And when I am not good toward Him, then He is no longer good toward me. In Christianity, man seeks to know and to do God's will. In all the other religions of the world, man seeks to have God do man's will. That is the difference between a religion of reason and a religion of revelation. Any questions on that? Including Judaism and Islam, and all the other religions of the world. Yeah, now, but see, Islam came out of the Judeo-Christian religion, but because it augmented with a theology of reason, it slips over into this. Same with Judaism? No. <coughs> Judaism is a religion of revelation. So Judaism and Christianity are the only two that fit into that wrong side of the coin. Correct. Yes. I'd say religion is a man's um, quest for a right relationship with its creator. Man is incurably religious. There's no way in the world we've ever been able to stamp it out of him. And we've tried. It's at different times. Yes? The last point you made about man thinking to know God's will Explain that what you said about the natural religion. The natural religion always has, as its premise or its basis, man seeking to have God do man's will. I've got something I want the gods to do for me. Yeah, let me say to you, depending on who you are and where you are in your maturing process, there's just a whole bunch of this kind of thinking over here. <laughs> yeah, I'm not talking about the way we, we act. I'm talking about the difference between a religion that is natural and a religion that is supernatural. Yeah, and, and, and as I've gone through this, you say, hey, listen, well, I kind of think that way. And there are parts of Christianity who are unfamiliar with or have jettisoned certain parts of the Bible who have moved over into reason as opposed to revelation. But yeah, you're exactly right. Okay, let's take a few moments and talk about the first expansion of Christianity. Now this is from Acts 28 until approximately the year 4000. Excuse me, 400. This is the first major expansion of Christianity. It began in the stable and it ended in a palace, the Vatican Palace. Now, what were the contributing factors that caused Christianity to explode, to really grow? I'd like to mention five in number. 
Number one, the Roman roads. They were the marvel of the ancient world. Gentlemen, there were approximately 25,000 miles of Roman roads. Or to get a grasp of that, that's a roughly equivalent to the interstate system in the United States, in the Roman Empire, making travel exceedingly easy. The second contributing factor to the explosion of Christianity back in those early days was what was called Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. The centralized government of Rome gave peace to the known world so the people could travel without fear of being ambushed or robbed and they didn't have to have passports. They could move freely from one part of the empire to the next. The third contributing factor was the common language. And the two major languages were Greek and Latin. Now this is important to hang on to because this comes back again and haunts Christianity in the, in the years that unfold. Greek was the language of the East. Latin was the language of the West. Now remember, roughly the Bosporus divides it. The Aegean Sea, that little strip of water, which is now Istanbul, over here, and under the Black Sea, the East embraced the Greek language, the West embraced the Latin language. The exception, of course, that would be the country of Greece. What well, kind of area are you talking about? I mean, what kind of area is civilized there? Well, there are a lot more civilized area than just the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire covered roughly this area right here. Okay? Now, let me just mention this. Since we're looking at the map here, let me just kind of say this parenthetically. We'll be coming back to this. But the Europe, for all practical purposes, is a cul-de-sac. It was back in those days when travel wasn't by the uh, jet airplane or by a fast ship. Because to the west, the blockage is, of course, the Atlantic Ocean. And you've got to remember now, we've got this map stretched out, so visualize it kind of turned in, like in a glow. And to the north, you've got the Arctic Circle. And to the south, you've got the Sahara Desert that moves across and right up through Saudi Arabia and right on into Iran and comes right up into here. And that was very hard to cross. And then, in the east, you have the Ural Mountains that come down to here and they stop out about here. And then you have the mountain range that comes on up through here so that all you really have is the, the neck to the cul-de-sac of approximately from here to here. And that's very, very important when it comes not only to the expansion of Christianity, but to the trauma the Christianity experienced in that thousand-year period following the period that we're going to be talking about this evening. So Europe was a cul-de-sac. And that was the part, that little cul-de-sac was the part which we call the Roman Empire. We're talking about the first 400 years, from the close of the Book of Acts to the year 400. Now the first 
factor that caused the explosion of Christianity. Remember, the first one was the Roman roads, the second, the Roman peace, the third, the common language. Now, the fourth is the pagan religions were waning. They had all these multiplicity of gods. And you remember, if you've done any studying of Greek and Roman mythology, of Zeus and Jupiter and Mars and Mercury and on and on and on. They had these different gods. And people grew tired of them. It was obvious that it was not the true religion. People didn't believe in the myths and mystery religions that were in existence. And they were looking for something that they could really sink their teeth into. They were looking for truth. And then the fifth, and this gentleman to me is the most crucial and important aspect of the five, and that is there was no political or ethnic source to Christianity. It wasn't tied to any political or economic system. And therefore, it did not become a threat to anybody or anything. Now, there are two or three concepts or ideas I want to really lay on you in the, in the time that we're together, and one of them I want to give to you now. And the word I want you to look at with me, and I want us to look at it carefully, because it's going to come up again and again in our times together, is dissimulation. Not dissimulation, but dissimulation. That is the opposite of the word assimilation. And the fear of being assimilated, the fear of being absorbed, was one of the impediments of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things we're going to learn, then, as we look through the history of the Christian movement, is that whenever Christianity, whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ was tied to a political or a cultural or an economic system, then it was resisted by others. Because people felt threatened in these areas, and they did not want to be assimilated. Let me give you an illustration of it. In the colonizing of the Americas, a number of countries came over and began their colonizing. One of the earliest were the French. And you remember that they colonized in this whole area here, which is modern-day Quebec, and that they had a lot of uh, work in New Orleans, and all up and down the Mississippi Basin here. And so, uh, when the British took over, and Canada became part of the British Commonwealth, the French people, who really uh, weren't really Christians, they were just a bunch of heathen who happened to be French, immediately became avowed Roman Catholics. And the reason why they became avowed Roman Catholics was England was Protestant. It was Anglican. And the fear of being assimilated by this new colonial power under which these French had to live, they maintained the distinctive of their language and the distinctive of their religion. That's dissimilation. See, the fear of being assimilated, the fear of being absorbed, caused them to move in the opposite direction of the threat. And that became a conviction for them. 
Well, what are you suggesting then? Are you saying that, uh, that France at that time was not necessarily Roman Catholic? No, I'm saying France was. Yeah, as a nation, was Roman Catholic. But just as you know that uh, not everybody that goes to Mass is a Christian, and not everybody that goes to church is a Christian. And those frontiersmen that were out there were just a bunch of raw heathen. French. See, in the year 1800, gentlemen, only about 7% of the population in the United States even went to church. According to your scripture here, why was Christianity so violently protected by the early Roman government? By the early what? Roman government. Okay, we're going to get into that. Let's hold off on that. But, yes. Um, I'm not sure I understand the simulation. It just seems like a circle. Because the more a country becomes acquainted or associated with the religion, then the simulation would happen at the point that there was any conflict. Yes. Is it, a, is it a never ending process? Or is it a yes, it is. Maybe it's an inevitable process. But it's something we can sure learn. And we can learn from it and, and, and be cautioned by it. And I think that's one of the great lessons of this study that we're going to be having together. Is it a, is it a good thing, a bad thing? It certainly is a bad thing. It is a bad thing. Oh, no question about it. There are certain advantages whenever Christianity hooked its wagon to a government that it always came back to haunt them. That was true in the Roman Empire. It was true in colonialism with Great Britain. It was true in the colonialism of Spain and uh, Portugal when the Roman Catholic fires and monks went out along with the conquests. So it's a menace advantage when they, they hooked their wagon with these political movements. But it always came back to haunt them. Because the people who associated Christianity with a political system rejected Christianity when they rejected the political system. <coughs> and the great strength of Christianity in those first 400 years, the reason why it spread like a prairie fire, it wasn't hooked to anything. It was distinctively different from Judaism. So the people did not associate it with the Jewish religion or the Jewish race. It was not affixed to any particular culture. It was transcultural. And it was not affixed to any particular government. Therefore, it was never viewed as a threat by the people. <coughs> okay, any questions on that? Christianity therefore moved out. It moved out through this region right in here. And you, again, you read in your book of the Bible, the book of Acts, you find a lot of that that takes place. Now, outside of the book of Acts, one of the great wonders, one of the great marvels, was the Celtic movement. C-E-L-T. C-E-L-T-I-C. Celtic. The Celtic movement. Now, the Celts were a race of people. And they lived right here in this area. 
and also over in Turkey. Northern Turkey and in uh, northern Macedonia and on up in what is today Hungary, Yugoslavia, in that area. Now the Celts were in Galatia, in the province of Galatia and Macedonia, when Paul preached the gospel. They were bilingual. And it was through their conversion that Christianity spread on up into Europe. And the Celtic people lived in this whole area right in here. They eventually crossed into Great Britain and went into Ireland. Now, as we will find out as we study later on, the Celts were assimilated here through the, the mass people movements that we're going to be studying tomorrow. And the, the Celts of today are the Irish. But they lived in that whole area. And they are important because they were responsible for the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Europe. When the Goths sacked Rome in 410 AD, the Goths were Christians. The Celts had led them to Christ. They were a product of the Celtic ministry. Now, we don't hear much about the Celts. And there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, the Roman Catholics were Latin, or are Latin. The Celts were Greek. The Protestants are Roman Catholic in background. That's our genesis. We came out of the Latin tradition, not out of the Greek tradition. So we don't talk much about them. The Anglo-Saxons eventually conquered the Celts and took over England, driving the Celts into Ireland. So there's great rivalry between England and Ireland, the rivalry that exists even to this day, as you know, reading your newspapers. The Celts led the Anglo-Saxons to Christ. And the Anglo-Saxons, because of their rivalry with the Celts, didn't want to admit their indebtedness. So we never talked about it. The Roman Catholic Church encouraged the invasion of Ireland by the British in order to abolish the Celtic Church because the Celtic Church was a threat to the Roman Church. So what happened was that the Celtics, for years and years and years, were non-Roman Catholic dissimulation. You see, they did not want to be absorbed. And so when the rest of Europe became Roman Catholic, the Celts remained there in their own Celtic tradition. They were not Roman Catholics. Now those of you who remember your history, remember that Henry VIII, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, wanted to divorce his wife because she couldn't give him a male heir. And the Roman Catholic Church forbid him to do this, and so what he did was he took the church into his own hands, made it Protestant, and formed the Anglican Church so that he could divorce Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn. And when Henry VIII led England into the Protestant camp, the Celtics immediately turned Roman Catholic. <laughs> and Ireland is Roman Catholic today. Yes. And of course the part that isn't, they're again. 
So it's a whole issue of dissimulation. Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland, was not Latin. He was Greek. And we see this again and again. Now the importance of the Celtic movement is seen in that the Celtic movement was not the growth of churches, but the growth of monasticism. It never formed into churches as we know it today. It was a monastic movement. Question. Yes. What is monastic? <laughs> exactly. A monastery. All right. That's what I want to talk about next. There are a couple of words, and we're going to get them out on the table tonight, but we're going to come back over them again and again. One is this word dissimulation. I want us to hang on to that because that becomes important in the study of the history of the Christian movement. The second word I want us to grab a hold of is actually two words. Now for many of you these are going to be brand new words. A sodality is exclusive. A modality includes everybody. A sodality excludes. There are no requirements for membership in a modality. There are special requirements for membership in a sodality. All societies have both modalities and sodalities. For example, Colorado Springs is a modality. The fire department in Colorado Springs is a sodality. The hospital is a sodality. Not everybody can be a fireman. Not everybody can work in the hospital. 
That's a sodality. It's a specialized group, oftentimes, but not necessarily, part of the modality. For example, in our church, the church is a modality. But the choir is a sodality. Not everybody can sing in the choir. Not everybody's part of it. It's a specialized group. For example, babies can't sing in the choir. See, babies can be part of the church. So a modality is inclusive. A sodality is exclusive. Now, the monasteries, the monastic movement... is a sodality. The church is a modality. And you see the difference in the Roman Catholic Church between the sodalities and the modalities, for example, in the orders. The Jesuits, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, and so forth. These are all sodalities. Not everybody belongs to them. They're specialized orders. They come into existence to do a specialized task. Not so with the modality. The modality is broad. The modality is inclusive. <coughs> By and large, in Christianity, the sodality is lay-led. And in the modality, it is clergy-led. exceptions to that, but by and large, that is the way it is. In the sodality, in the church, in the Roman Catholic Church, the sodality was noble. The modality was always geographic and stationary. The sodality in the Roman Catholic Church was run by an abbot. In the Roman Catholic Church, the modality was run by the bishop. In Protestantism, the Southern Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Methodists are modalities. The Wycliffe Bible Translators, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, Campus Crusade, the Navigators, University, all of them are sodalities. Do you understand the difference between a modality and a sodality? Any questions on that? <coughs> now that distinction, which may seem academic now, will become tremendously important as we come to grips with the movement of Christianity. Not all, but almost all. And certainly all of the Protestant monastic movements were lay-led, was lay-started. Francis of Assisi, for example, was a layman, never became ordained, from the Franciscans. Yes? Is that the way it is now? I mean, are the Jesuits, for example, laymen? Some are, some aren't. Would all churches fall under uh, modalities? Yes. Or don't many churches have requirements or things which would 
not necessarily make them all inclusive to all people? Yeah, the only requirement for membership in a church is a profession of faith in Christ. But it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old. It doesn't matter what your gifts and abilities are. You're all included. Not so with the serology. Yes? There are different uh, groups within a denomination. Uh, like you're Baptist, uh, you've got the conservative, you've got the American Baptist, the Lutheran, you've got the Southern Lutheran. They're all different modalities. Right. But, for example, uh, how many of you are Southern Baptists? Okay. Well, now, what, is your, what do you call your mission board in the Southern Baptists? Foreign Mission Board. Foreign Mission Board? That's a sodality. Now, some sodalities are economists, and some sodalities are run by the modalities. <laughs> See, some sodalities are under the control of the modality. For example, in the Roman Catholic Church, all of your monastic movements are under the authority of the Pope. So they're not completely autonomous. Campus Crusade navigators are not under the authority of any modality. They're autonomous. The Baptist Foreign Missionary Board is a sodality, but it is under the authority of the denomination or the modality. What are some of the exclusion requirements that the Catholic Catholic Crusade navigators What makes them exclusive? Well, first of all, the target, the kind of ministry that they're going to have, the navigators say that we're not called upon to minister to everybody in every sphere of influence. God has called us to work with a particular age group in a particular way to accomplish a particular task. We're not trying to minister to the whole man. Not only that, not everybody that wants to belong to the navigators can belong to the navigators. They're, they're selective in whom they will choose. And besides that, there are age requirements. A six-year-old could come to Lawrence and say, I want to be on the staff of the navigators, and Lawrence would say, grow up. <laughs> yes? Can you do anything with the etymology of those two words to help us understand? What is so and both? I don't know. I do not know the etymology of the words. Probably should. I'm sorry. I just don't. Sodal and modal. But with those, with the etymology of those words, I do not know. Okay, the point I want to make is that the Great Commission was fulfilled in Europe by the Celtic. And they were subtle, not modal, in form. Did Rome have anything to do with the Great Commission? Yes, but Rome as a denomination or Rome as a movement, i.e. the Roman Catholic Church, did not come into existence until the first century. <coughs> Excuse me, Tom. I mean, with the exception of Pope Peter. <laughs> It's going to be warm in here. I'm going to. Woo! Ah. 
so what happened was the Celtic movement was the only case in the first 1,000 years of a nation becoming a missionary. And they found out across Europe and brought Christ to the barbarian peoples. And they formed monasteries. But these monasteries became the urban centers and gave birth to the cities of Europe. The great cities of Europe were originally monasteries. But we see that in our own country. San Diego, if I'm not mistaken, began as a mission. San Jose began as a mission. All up and down the coast of California, the Roman Catholics came with their, their movements and founded these missions, and then out of that developed the cities. And we'll talk about, about that later on. But what happened was they combined scholarship and they combined work together, and uh, uh, the artisans, the trades, all of these were formed there. And what happened was that these Celtics formed an alternate culture to the barbarian way of life. And as people gravitated toward these moral monasteries, they got enculturated with Christianity, and that's what turned the barbarians. Now, I've got one other thing I want to talk about tonight, and then we'll call it quits. And that is a, a very important event in Christianity called the Edict of Milan. In 313 A.D., there was a man by the name of Constantine, and he aspired to the throne of Rome. And before he entered into his last great battle, he had a vision of a cross. And in the vision, it said to him, Conquer by this. And he went and he conquered his opponents, and as a result of that, converted to Christianity. And as a result, through the Edict of Milan, he decreed that Christianity would be the accepted religion of the empire. Now what happened was that because the, the barbaric hordes, and we're going to talk about that tomorrow morning, began to make their way on into Italy through here like this, he knew the seat of the Roman Empire over to Constantinople, which is right there on the Bosporus, because he felt he could defend it better. And that left a void in leadership for the western segment of the empire. The bishop at Rome during these years increased in importance. And when Constantine moved the seat of the empire to Constantinople, the bishop viewed himself as the successor to the emperor. And so when the Roman Catholic Church went in the feminine stages and came into existence, it produced itself after the form of the old Roman Empire. So that the Roman pyramidal structure is seen in the Roman Catholic Church. That's how it came into existence. And the Pope at that time, or the Bishop of Rome, claimed authority over the secular rulers as well as the spiritual rulers. This is a tremendously important time in the formulation of Christianity. And so what he called it was the Holy Roman Empire. So 
that what he wanted to do was he wanted to reestablish the Roman Empire under the leadership of Christ with the Pope at the head. And so the whole structure of the Roman Catholic Church followed the structure of the Roman Empire. And so he formed the College of Cardinals which was borrowed from the Roman Senate. And when he divided the geography of the church up, what do the Roman Catholics call that? Diocese. Isn't that right? That's the same word as the Roman emperors used for their groups of provinces. Diocese. And he used the same geographical boundaries. This temple. Yeah, and we'll see when that when that when that happened when that when that took over. Then there's a man, the name of Augustine. He lived from 354 to 430 A.D. And he was probably the most influential theologian in the Roman Catholic Church, but he was also the most influential theologian in the Protestant Church, as we'll see later on. He was famous for a number of writings, but the one I want to call your attention to is a book he called The City of God. And in his book, The City of God, he reasoned thusly. He said that God established the theocratic kingdom in the Old Testament to show what rulership by God ought to look like. That the world is ruled by the prince of this world, the devil. And that's what Paul says. Whom whom the God of this world is binding the minds of them that believe not. So secular rule is the product of a non-Christian or the devil. And so when God set up the theocratic kingdom, he set up an alternate rulership to the rulership of the world. When the Jews rejected Jesus Christ and Jerusalem was destroyed, the mantle went to Christianity. And it is now the Christian's task to set up a theocratic kingdom or the city of God. So the divine and earthly cities confront one another. And the task of the church is to conquer the earthly and to make it into the divine. That is the mission of the church. The objective is to bring the kingdom of God or the city of God to earth. Now gentlemen, with the Roman government now in Constantinople, the mantle was on the Bishop of Rome. And Constantine's theological work in the city of God gave the rationale for the institutionalized church becoming coterminous with the state. And as a result of that, the church viewed itself as a titular head not only of the church, but also of the state. And it became a political as well as a spiritual power. Kind of a man was Augustine. Yeah. 
Well, he was converted. He was a reprobate of the first order before. He was a libertine. He had uh, tremendous appetite for sex. And uh, wasn't, it didn't seem to be able to curb it. And uh, got himself in a tremendous amount of trouble. Finally was converted. And Ambrose uh, was the one that led him to Christ. It completely revolutionized his life. Had a first class mind. Just a brilliant guy. Calvin, Luther, all of those men in the Reformation bowed heavily from him. Is this book, The City of God, tough reading? Yep. If you think this one's tough, yes. It's worthwhile reading, though. Is there any trouble with the Celtic movement in other words as far as studying Christianity throughout the Yeah, we're going to see, and let me say this to you now, we're going to see that all of the advances of Christianity, underline that word all, all of the advances of Christianity came through the subtle monastic orders. It never comes through the modality. I'm sorry. I do not do not know. I'm not that familiar with them. Hindu has never tried to expand. Hindu has been buried into the culture of the Indian people. Islam surely has. Yeah, of course, today in the United States we've got a lot of people flirting with Eastern religions because of the void in their lives as a result of secularism. But the Hinduism has never really been a missionary movement. Okay, let me make some observations and we'll call it a night. By the middle of the second century, the church evolved into a Levitical concept of the ministry. Because by the time they got into the middle of the second century, they viewed themselves as heirs to the Old Testament promises of God, they began to embrace an Old Testament concept of the ministry. So that gradually but surely, the communion table began to be called an altar. The Lord's Supper called a sacrifice. The clergy called priests. That was not accidental. That was intentional. And if you want to know what the Old Testament high priest looked like when he was dressed with all of his garb and his paraphernalia, the place to look is at the Pope when he's got all of his garb and paraphernalia on because he has intentionally and purposely tried to dress himself as the Old Testament high priest because he views himself as heir to that office. But when that happened, the ministry was taken from the hands of the ordinary believer and placed into the hands of the professional. And so Christianity began to move to a halt. The first advance of Christianity came in an unstructured, non-institutional, transcultural movement. 
where every man understood himself as a priest of God and wherever he went proclaimed the gospel. And as it became institutionalized, they looked to the Old Testament for its model. And when they did that, they took the priesthood from the hands of the ordinary believer, gave it to the professional, and the whole thing ground to a screeching halt. So at the year 400, for all practical purposes, Christianity came to an end of its expansion. And it did very little expanding proportionally for the next thousand years. Second observation. Before Constantine came and with his edict of Milan, making Christianity the accepted religion of the empire, the church was exclusive. The church was exclusive because of the persecutions. I mean, you had to really want to belong in order to join. Because if you join, you got persecuted for it. But when Constantine, with his edict of Milan, made Christianity the accepted religion of the empire, it became involved, therefore, to join the church. Therefore, millions of people, not millions, but thousands of people, flocked to the church. And it no longer was exclusive, and now became inclusive. And it lost its edge of commitment. Only people who really meant business were Christians prior to that time. Now folks did it simply because it was the thing to do. When the church, therefore, started to turn secular, as a reaction to it, the monastic movements developed. The monastic movements came into existence as an endeavor on the part of conscientious Christians to put commitment back into the Christian life. And so, what they did was they thought in terms of a difference between secular and spiritual. And so if you're secular, you live in the regular milieu of the church with all the rest of the normal, nominal people. But if you really want to mean business, then you become part of one of these monastic orders. And these are the people who really mean business for God. Now, we have the same thing today. So the guy that really means business for God, you know, he becomes the fundamentalist, he separates himself from society and if he really wants to mean business for God he goes into full-time Christian work. Do you ever hear people talk like that or think like that? That's where it comes from. And that's precisely how the monastic movements came into existence. Just a couple more observations. The creeds formed by the church, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedon Creed, all these different creeds, and we'll look at those briefly tomorrow, but they tended to be divisive because they were expressions of an institutional, cultural frame of mind. And this produced dissimulation. And gentlemen, we all agree to the basic content of the Bible, what we call the core of the Bible. That the Bible is the Word of God, Jesus is the Son of God, that salvation is through Him, and so forth. The what we call the core. But when we ever, whenever we try to define Christianity more narrowly, whenever we try to put it in its creative form, at that point it becomes divisive. 
because when you start to, to, to express yourself in the areas in which the Bible is not all that clear then we start going in different directions and so we have fellowship together here this evening simply because we're all committed to the core of the message but the moment I say to you that it's important to believe in infant baptism how are you going to get up and walk out or the moment I say to you you've got to be baptized by immersion another group is going to get up and walk out and the more narrowly you define it, the more divisive it becomes. Yes, Bill? It seemed to me like, uh, in, in my idea, that there were two common denominations. The Lord's Prayer, as far as communicating uh, and, and the Apostles' Creed. That, that, the Apostles' Creed, that seemed to be rather universally accepted as, yeah. as a Christian doctrine. Yeah, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the apostles and came into existence in the church hundreds of years later. But there again, it was a creed. Was that divisive, though? Or was... All creeds end up being divisive. That, that creed eventually, eventually was the thing that split the West from the East because of the terminology. Were both the Eastern and Western deals, were they both government uh, it seems to me like you're saying the Roman uh, Catholic Church was the government was subservient, and the Eastern Church was was in Constantinople was the government. Uh, no, the government was not subservient. The church was subservient to the government in the East for years and years and years. It was just the opposite. Yeah, and that was the great struggle. We're a little ahead of ourselves now, Bill, but that was the great struggle in Europe because the Pope wanted to be on top, but then the kings wanted to be on top. And the king said, we're going to appoint the bishops. And the pope said, no, we're going to appoint the bishops. And there was a struggle. And that lasted for centuries. And that's why it's stymied uh, there, at the, besides the geographical uh, uh, barriers, to why the church stymied in the east. You bet. And also why stymied in the west. Yeah. Well, whether you say the church began to run, uh, Christianity began to bring down to a halt of 400 Why did it grind them to a halt? Yeah, you said for about a thousand years, I get pointed. Yeah. What are the basic reasons there again? Well, we're going to get into that tomorrow, but let me say, by, <coughs> by way of introduction, there's several factors. One was you had tremendous people movements threatening it. And so it was constantly on the defensive. Secondly, it was married, when Constantine made it, the religion of the empire, it immediately became married with the Roman Empire. And everybody that did not want to be associated with the Roman Empire rejected Christianity because they viewed them as synonymous. As that slowed the thing way, way down. The third thing that slowed it way, way down was the fact that when the church, when the Roman Catholic Church institutionalized around this period of time, it institutionalized in modality forms. And the modality never is missionary. Period. Why is that? The modality sponsors missionary and evangelism. And we're going to look at that. That's an interesting phenomenon, Mike. In fact, if you have a bunch of pastors here at churches, they'd take violent exception with me. But as we look at the history of the church, we're going to see it. We see it again and again and again and again. Correct me if I'm wrong. The point that I means 
sense to me as it progresses of the whole is the fact that the, the church becoming professional and, uh, and it turn people away. Yeah, so that's part of the modality. They evolved the Old Testament image of it and therefore it, it became a uh, geographical entity, modal informed, clergy led for a professional priesthood rather than the priesthood of the believer. The Great Commission is given to the individual, not the organization. It is individual, not corporate. Evangelism is individual, it is not corporate. Whenever the task of evangelism is interpreted as being organizational or institutional, it dies. But it always does. And that's the reason why the expansion of Christianity was always lay-led by sodalities. Sure is. As a matter of fact, spending like crazy. That's one of the exciting things. But it's, it's expanding in the, the monastic orders. Which you better be able to better define for me in Roman Catholicism, but which I could do for you in Protestantism, in orders as uh, team. You were talking about that earlier. Um, African Mission. Uh, Central American Mission. Look at the Bible Translator. New Tribes. On and on and on. These are all Protestant orders. And to the degree, we'll get a little ahead of ourselves again, but gentlemen, to the degree that the sodality is under the soul of the modality, it is hindered. To the degree that it is free from the control of the modality, it grows like crazy. Yes. Why were all the religions formed in 2,500 years? Nobody knows for sure, unless the beginning of the 2,500 years was the end of the flood in the Tower of Babel. And then the other side of that would be uh, the rise of Rome. It's been no major religion since then. Even the mystery religions, the old religion or the ancient religion, 25? Yes. Yeah. The mystery religions came into existence during the time of the Roman Empire. I see. They're not even more ancient than that. No. Okay, yes, Doug. When, uh, when people talk about uh, sodality being parachurch groups, what they're trying to do is um, yeah. It's in the nature of the case that whenever we organize anything, we like to defend legitimacy within that which we have disorganized. It's true for business, it's true for the church, it's true for everything. If, if I went into the real estate business in Colorado Springs, I'd like everybody to think that I was the only legitimate real estate uh, salesman in the city, and I'd like to define real estate uh, business in terms of where I am. You'd be the first legit. <laughs> 
الله